Hello, my name is Megan. And this is my podcast. Hello, my name is Megan. And today I have for you a guest. <laughs> um, hello, my name is Megan Morgan, and this is the uh, podcast, Cocktails and Cookbooks. Uh, the point of which is to discuss uh, whatever you are drinking and whatever you are cooking, especially if what you are cooking is out of a cookbook. Today is a very special episode because for the first time ever, I have a guest on the podcast. And I am very extremely honored to announce that my first ever guest on Cocktails and Cookbooks is Eric Christopher Myers, a filmmaker and uh, extraordinarily experienced food person uh, in all sorts of ways. And uh, Eric, uh, can you please introduce yourself and, and maybe do like a quick brief on what your food experience over the course of your life has been? Hi, my name is Eric Christopher Myers. I am a filmmaker and an extraordinarily experienced food person. I think that's, if we did the video version, that's what needs to come up at the bottom of the screen. Yes, a very um, experienced food person. <laughs> that was probably the best uh, introduction that I've ever received. Thank you, Megan Morgan. Um, yeah, in my earlier days, as I, you know, sort of worked my way through film school and navigated my way through life, I found myself, like so many other starving artists, uh, paying the bills by doing everything in the restaurant industry from, I've worked in the kitchen, I've waited tables. During one very dark period in my life, I had to manage a restaurant. And I am also a foodie and it creates sort of complicated feelings for me when there is something that I love and I also have to, by extension of my love of a thing, prostitute myself in order to pay the bills. It's a, it's a very complicated thing. But now being in my 40s and being a single dad um, during a pandemic, happy 2020 for all of you who are listening in 2021 or 2022. Um, <laughs> Make the future be better, right? Yeah, I hope that the cockroaches aren't the only ones listening to this in a few years. I'm I'm finding myself being a socially distant individual who's being responsible and cooking my own food, which is in a lot of ways a unique experience for me that I'm sure that um, you'll definitely understand, Megan, and then we'll probably chat about a bit. So tell me. Uh, this evening, I am having a uh, sort of mutt of a sangria, uh, EKM. What is your beverage of choice? Are you uh, joining me in the in the uh, whole uh, sangria zone? No, I've got to say that I figured in a way that would best represent my personality and all things dark side, I have been enjoying a Cabernet Sauvignon by the name of Devil's Advocate. Very nice. I like it. What is the base for your mutt sangria that you're enjoying, Megan Morgan? Uh, 
it is a combination of a, I believe some rosé and then also a little bit of a Chardonnay and some watermelon ice cubes. So you just sort of mixed a couple of wines and you're not sure what those wines are? <laughs> Precisely. Yes. It's late on a Sunday and this is where we are at this juncture. I'm going to take over as the de facto host for just a moment and I'm going to ask you to please rise from your chair, walk <laughs> to your nearest refrigerator and please tell me what wine it is that you have dumped into a glass along with frozen fruit to consume uh, the recording of this episode. Frozen watermelon makes for excellent ice cubes, by the way, in case you ever need them. I've also heard that frozen grapes are very good. All right, okay, yes, what I have is a 2018 Chardonnay called uh, Trailstone, which is from my favorite place in the whole entire world, Washington State. Why is Washington State your favorite place in the entire world? I mean, I've heard you. Okay, look, I think maybe we should do a full disclosure here for all listeners. Yes. Um, other than my child, you're my best friend in the whole world. Aw, so, you're my best friend. So we know one another quite well. And I've heard you, I, I've heard you wax poetic on the subject of Washington State many, many times. So, uh, Perhaps yes. for the benefit of your listeners and subscribers, you could explain your Washington State obsession. Fetish. I was going to say fetish, but obsession is a good word. Yes, we could go in either direction. Okay, so it was late in 2009, or actually it was early in 2009, late 2008, when I first arrived in Washington, and it was February. And keep in mind that I had just driven across um, all of the Midwest, like the whole entire thing. And it was dark and it was gray and it was dreary and it was gross in a way that is sort of difficult to encapsulate. There was just ice everywhere and everything was dead. And then I crossed over into uh, an area called the Pacific Northwest. And upon crossing the mountains, immediately everything was green and lush. And I think that within about 10 minutes of arriving in uh, Washington state, I realized that not only are there standard coffee shops, there are like weird, like parking lot coffee shops. And there was just this sort of vibe of both industrialism and hippieism. And there was this food culture and this music culture that was just, simultaneously trapped in the past because grunge is sort of what everyone thinks of when they think of Washington. And so they still sort of have that going on. And yet there's also this tech thing that's going on and this tech pop thing that's happening. And it was just this really, it was this place that is beautiful because there are volcanoes and mountains and rivers and the ocean and peaceful and yet a little bit ominous. And it's all being fueled by like coffee and seafood. And so, yes, I find it to be uh, both magnificent and a little bit strange and sort of lovely in a way that no other place on the planet is. You see, if I were to sort of rank the areas of personal importance and attraction for the Pacific Northwest, 
as much as I'm a foodie and as much as I'm a hardcore lover of coffee, uh, not this bullshit, I'm sorry, this Starbucks bullshit that I know you love because you talk Mm -hmm. about it as being this distinctly West Coast thing, uh, which I could, you know, easily pull off for you if you just give me a regular pot of coffee and let me leave it on the burner overnight. <laughs> That's I, I can emulate that overcooked, over-roasted flavor. But as much as I love food and as much as I love coffee, here are the things that would be important to me. Number one, Pacific Northwest, Bigfoot. Yes. That's what I would be looking for. I, I would make a beeline immediately to find the Bluff Creek location of the filming of the famous Patterson Gimlin film. Yes, which um, I can guarantee you is gorgeous because basically all of the Pacific Northwest is beautiful beyond beyond belief. Exactly. And this is sort of an addendum to number one. This would be 1A. I would say while I was in Humboldt County or in the Humboldt County region, I would try to see if I could find the location of Mike Patton's parents uh, in the off chance that he was perhaps visiting, which is probably never going to happen. But nonetheless, um, Patterson Gimlin and Mike Patton. Number two, uh, for the Pacific Northwest, um, I, you know, grunge. I'm a child of the 90s. I'm a big fan of punk and, you know, all of that music from that era. And number three, Mount St. Helens. Number four, that's when we start talking about, you know, food and mysterious mist and, you know, donuts right off the, you know, all of, all of the things that I know you sort of prioritize and which listeners of this podcast would probably find uh, more interesting than me talking about Bigfoot and Faith No More announcing. <laughs> so, yeah. Th- by the way, and for anybody who is listening to this right now, the show is called Cocktails and Cookbooks. Is that the, the proper order here? Because yes. I had cocktails um, and I'm having cocktails right now. And that is definitely influencing the tenor of this. <laughs> there are about like, five different topics that I would love to have you on this podcast for, but the specific topic that I wanted you to talk about, you know, as many of my listeners know, I'm a huge fan of at-home cooking. Um, What some of them might not know is that I dabbled in the food industry briefly in the sense that I worked for Canera for about a white hot minute. Um, and I was fired in very short order due to my incompetence. You, however, Eric, have worked in the food industry, as you mentioned, quite a bit. And you've also worked in the food industry in a multitude of capacities. So I would love to, to have you speak about, you know, sort of your perspective on, on the food industry and all the variety of ways, uh, you know, in which your perspective about food has been shaped by sort of these various positions you've held, which can you just briefly give us a description of all the things that you've done as far as like food is concerned? Sure. And I'm just going to say that for all the stories I could tell, and I have some wonderful stories, <laughs> what I'm really dying for you to tell is uh, your Panera history and why you were fired after a white hot minute. <laughs> because um, the stories of restaurant failure are always more interesting than the stories of restaurant success. 
Uh, well, you're not currently day. managing a restaurant, so don't don't you think that we sort of like fall into the same category? You dabbled, but I, in a I quit, Megan. <laughs> I walked away. <laughs> I, I escaped. Um, no, I mean it, it's here's the thing with the food service industry, and whether we're talking about fast food or we're talking about casual dining or fine dining, the attraction for many is the fact that it is a really, really easy way, particularly if you're working in front of the house, if you're a server or a bus person or a host or whatever, it's a really easy way to sort of have a flexible schedule, to go to work, to walk in with empty pockets, to walk out with literal cash in hand and be able to go burn it that night with the rest of the front and back of the house crew at whatever bar is the most accessible. It's a really convenient way. And you know, th there is the whole ongoing stereotype about actors in particular who are working as waiters. And the fact is that there is a lot of truth to that. And there is the fact that servers can trade shifts people are able to effectively create their own schedules, be able to um, manage their own schedules and make you know, allowances, whether that's based on an audition, a performance, or if you're a college student, um, classes, tests, whatever. You're able to have a flexible schedule and yes, you are able to perform in a way. And that's a, you know, a whole other subject about the rather stage show quality to running a shift. Every every shift is in a lot of ways like putting on a production where you have all of these moving parts. Being a filmmaker, as you said, and also having had a very long experience working in theater growing up, both as an actor, as a set painter, as a light operator. You know, I've done a lot of things in various productions. It, the, the, for lack of a better term, the pageantry of working in a restaurant and you walk in with sort of a blank slate, the doors open, the guests come in and you have all of these moving parts. You have the person at the podium who greets the tables and has to manage where everyone is seated. Um, you have the different servers who are working different sort of quadrants or different areas in the front of the house. You have the bus people who are, you know, moving through and clearing out all the clutter. And then you have all of the back of the house crew. You've got the people who are cooking. You've got the people who are washing the dishes. You have all of these components and you have a manager, a director who is running the show. I was drawn to all of that. I began when I was old enough to get a job. I guess I was 16. I began working at a burger joint. It was not a it was not like a McDonald's or a Burger King. It was a place called Ocean City Fries and Burgers um at the Columbia Mall in Maryland. And it was very much a place where there was an emphasis on the quality of the product. So we actually, um, we didn't get frozen fries out of a bag. We actually took potatoes that we had to cut and then we had to actually, you know, use a potato cutter for in order to make our fries. We had to do the same thing with cauliflower, with zucchini, various vegetables. We had to, you know, change out the oil. We had to use high quality components. Um, the same thing with whether it was burgers, it was chicken sandwiches, it was um, um, pit beef, 
whatever that might be, I learned how to grill. I learned how to work with vegetables. And eventually, you know, by the time I was 17, I was an assistant manager and, you know, learning about how to sort of run that show with five people working on a crew. And eventually, you know, started working in, uh, you know, chain restaurants, on the line, I was a I was a grill person. I was a fry cook. I was, uh, you know, as needed, washing dishes in an industrial um, dishwasher machine in order to turn and burn. Uh, I became a waiter. I did a lot of front of the house components. I became a corporate trainer, teaching you know new servers how to engage with their guests because I was often the head weight in restaurants, which meant I got the biggest sections, but I also had to check people to make sure they did their side work, which is at the end of the day, refilling all the condiments in their sections and cleaning certain areas of the kitchen and the front of the house. I became a wine trainer. I ultimately became a front of the house manager and then an assistant general manager. I've done a lot in restaurants to the point where, as someone who loves food, I hated food for a very long time. Oh no. Well, that's an extremely unfortunate place to reach, but I think that that's not necessarily, I think for, for a great many people who sort of like where passion becomes work, sometimes then the work takes the, uh, sort of saps the passion out of it. That is correct, and it makes you hate restaurants. <laughs> it makes you hate so, restaurants yeah. because not, I mean, the thing is that it, it's sort of like any discipline. You're an author, I'm a filmmaker, and I'm sure that being an author as you are, and uh, listeners, if you have not read The Altered Wake, <laughs> make sure that you go to Amazon.com and you purchase <laughs> The Altered Wake, and then you leave a review and a rating. Um, being an author, I'm sure that it makes it difficult for you when you're reading to just be able to sort of do what you did as a kid or as a teenager before you really became, um, you know, a, a, a career minded writer when, you know, this was a goal where you were trying to get your work out there. You could just read and you could be transplanted to that universe. And now yes. as a published author who talks about your own work and takes your work very seriously because audiences are reading it, you begin reading other books and you become frustrated by certain things that you're reading because you're, you're seeing behind the scenes what the yes. editor should have done, what the writer should have done, the cover art, all of the production aspects of that. And it's the same thing if you've worked in a restaurant, particularly if you've been in a leadership role. Going to a restaurant sucks because you are critiquing every single aspect because you know everything that's wrong from the way that you know guests are being seated or not being seated to the timeliness of service to, you know, whether your dishes are being cleared when you're finished um, to the way that the checks are presented. There are so many components and it just, it kills your love of something that if you are passionate about it, and for me, food service has never been something I've been passionate about, but food is and alcohol, particularly in, you know, food and beverage pairing, that is something I love very, very much. And the dining experience is something that should elevate that, that should accentuate that, that should be something that for people who love this, 
it's an experience that like for myself as a film enthusiast, going to the movies should be an experience that's not ruined by, you know, kids sitting there scrolling through Twitter the entire time or people answering their phones or talking or all of those various things. And it, it makes the restaurant experience fucking awful for lack of a more, uh, PG term. <laughs> um, PG terminology is not necessary on this podcast. So you're totally cool. Well, how do you feel about food now? Having had sort of this multitude of experiences that uh, maybe did not necessarily uh, accentuate your enjoyment of food. Like, where are you at this point in your whole, uh, you know, foodie journey? Well, you know, I mean, I come from a family where my mother was willing to eat about three things. Spaghetti with tomato sauce, um, penne with tomato sauce, and on occasion when she'd maybe had a drink, some farfalle with red sauce. And I mean, <laughs> my mom could fuck up a cup of coffee. I mean, she was very inept in the kitchen. And I say that uh, not to be mean, but simply to be you know, very truthful. And my father was a very, very good cook uh, with, with a sort of limited range of things that he was able to do. But the things that he did, he did very well he didn't get a lot of opportunity because, you know, maybe once in a while we could have taco night. Once in a while we could have chili. It, it, he kind of planned if and when he cooked around my mother, who, like I said, had a very, very narrow range of things that she was willing to eat. So my sister and I really began sort of cooking for ourselves in a lot of ways because there's only so many times you can eat really bad spaghetti um, with a terrible combination of ragu and old El Paso taco sauce. Um, like I said, my mom was, when she was creative, it was not in a good way. And so my sister and I began experimenting quite a bit. And when I began working as a teenager for the, the burger joint that I mentioned, I had the opportunity, I'm working with meat, I'm working with chicken, I'm working with pit beef, I'm working with vegetables, I'm, you know, I'm cutting vegetables, I can do various things I can experiment with, with batters, with marinades, with all sorts of different things. And I really began playing. Again, we're talking about sort of a narrow range of things I could work with, because a lot of it was based around the grill. When I really began sort of flying without a net as a young adult, as a college student and saying, okay, I need, to I need to support myself and sustain myself working in the restaurant industry. If you're working in a restaurant that is geared toward a specific cuisine, it's gonna turn you off toward that cuisine. You go in, you smell it, you're around it, you're looking at it, it's all you see. If you wanna eat and you get an employee discount, that's the food you're gonna have. When you go home, your clothes smell like it. It doesn't matter how many times you wash your uniform, it's always going to smell like what that thing is. And you know, it, being someone who loves Italian food and having worked in several Italian restaurants, you know, it was a hard thing to bring myself back around to veal parmesan. But, you know, I, when I finally got out of the service industry and I began working, you know, in career paths that were more geared toward the things I wanted to do in life, 
Um, I got married and I ended up marrying a young lady who was and is an incredible cook who, if there's anyone in this world that I've ever met, who should have her own restaurant where she is designing the menu and overseeing the staff, it is my soon-to-be ex-wife. She is absolutely outstanding with all of the things that she does. And so I ate very, very well. I ate incredibly well. And she wanted only the best ingredients. And if we were at a point where financially we could only, you know, sort of work with a limited income in terms of, of the things that we purchased, even then she had tricks and methods um, to just make it as exceptional as humanly possible. The only problem with that was that as I am a type A personality when it comes to many things in my life, uh, she was very much a type A personality when it came to food preparation. And I couldn't really contribute a whole lot. And I was able to sort of offer input. I was able to offer feedback and suggestions, but it kind of became a question of whether she was going to accept those suggestions and that feedback and that input. She was so good at what she did um, that it would have been wonderful regardless. But nonetheless, I didn't really feel like I was able to have much of a voice when it came to the sort of things that she prepared. And when I was able to go out onto the back porch and sort of dust off the grill and sort of, you know, dust off my skills that had sort of fallen by the wayside a bit from, yeah, I used to make pit beef and I used to do all of these various things and let me grill some steaks. Let me do, you know, these things that will contribute to dinner. Nonetheless, I always felt um, whether it was, you know, through what she did or just the way that I felt very inferior to somebody who was clearly much better than I was, um, I didn't really feel like I was able to make a strong contribution. She and I are no longer together, and we are, as already stated, in the great pandemic of 2020. I am a single dad who has his child part of the time, and all of this has made me, you know, I can either be irresponsible and go out and get Little Caesars like a sad lonely bachelor or I <laughs> make my own pizza and you know so it's it's forced me to not only dust off some skills I had but to learn and to grow a bit and I'm finding that for the first time in my life the very long answer to your very short question is <laughs> I'm finding it right now in the year 2020 that for the first time in my life I'm enjoying cooking I'm I'm and I'm learning things I, I'd never done before. And I'm taking certain things that I really enjoyed, whether it was from restaurants or from my previous marriage, things that I really liked and I sort of took for granted that I could just order and pick up or I could go and I could sit down and eat or I could ask a significant other to make for me. I, I have to figure them out for myself. And I'd like to say I'm enjoying that process and I'm very happy with the end result. What about you, Megan? What about you? What about your cooking experience and where you are right now? Well, I've talked about my cooking experience a lot on the podcast as far as like my journey so far. Um, 
and you know, I think that probably one of the first conversations that you and I ever had was about our, our mutual love of food and specifically sushi. Yes. Um, I very distinctly remember our sort of talk about, you know, the textures and the flavors and sort of also the sort of like experience of a, you know, sushi is a very specific experience. There is, you know, th this whole, a really good Japanese restaurant where, where they have like some really excellent sushi chefs is an experience. Um, and it's something that at least for Americans is, is sort of set aside and special. And from the moment you walk in the door to the moment that you leave, you are, you know, having a, a sort of conversation with a, a culture that is sort of honed in on a specific flavor profile that is, you know, wrapped around this idea of like seafood, which a lot of the times is raw, like a good proper sushi is raw fish and rice. And then, or raw chicken, depending on uh, <laughs> who you talk to. And um, I'm hoping you're not talking to those people because I don't uh, want you to go to the hospital and die. When, when it comes to the raw chicken, I think that I will probably be skipping that specific experience. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, there's this sort of um, overall experience that comes with food. And especially specifically in that case and in a lot of other cases with the food service we've all been sort of forced recently to we've all experienced loss in a certain sense because um i know that you used to frequent for example an indian buffet that uh you held very near and dear to your heart and that you still hold near and dear to your heart that is a very specific experience these these specific foods and also like you know the environment and the atmosphere and the memories of having gone to this place with your son with me and with my kids and so we've experienced that loss of those sort of general experiences and then we also have for many of us gained this sense of empowerment over what we're cooking at home and the experience that we're creating at home. You know, for me, that journey has sort of been, what are the things that I'm accustomed to having that now I'm being forced to make at home? And how can I sort of recreate that experience that I can't have in a restaurant now? And then also, what are the new things that I can make that I maybe never would have even been able to get in a restaurant? How does, I guess, how does your, your very broad range of experience, how do you think influences what you're doing now during the pandemic and sort of your approach to things? Because you have a lot of experience, you know, you've seen a multitude of aspects and you bring a lot of knowledge to the table that I think a lot of people do not have. How does that influence sort of your approach, especially in light of the fact that you've been in the service side of things a lot. And for a very long time, you had someone who was, you know, doing a lot of the food preparation and you were pretty much, you know, 
not a part of that process. What is it like now to come back to the table, having had all of those experiences, being in this unique experience of like not having the restaurant experience anymore, and now you're like having to make some of these things for yourself and also learn how to do some of these things for yourself? There's probably two answers to your question. and It's a long question. <laughs> and it's a good question. It's a very good question. I, I'd say that the first part is that, as I said, I'm a father and my son is going to be eight in just over two weeks. Um, he's also on the autism spectrum. So it's always been a challenge with him um, in terms of introducing him to new food. He is obviously sort of limited in terms of a willingness to try new sensory experiences. If you know anything about autism, it can affect different people who are on the spectrum in different ways, but one of those things is the sensory aspect of food, you know, what the texture is like. It's not just about how it tastes, it's about how it feels in the mouth. And that can make it difficult when we're talking specifically in the case of my son about meat. He is someone who has been a vegetarian for much of his life. And so we're talking about a lot of cereal, we're talking about a lot of bread, we're talking about yogurt. We're not so much talking about um, red meat and chicken and things of those sorts and a lot of supplementary vitamins. It's something that I have tried to work on with him very, very much. And just prior to the pandemic, I was having a lot of success. I was getting him to eat steak for the very first time. I was getting him to eat cheeseburgers. He loves pancakes. He loves IHOP. It's just that, you know, trying to pull him away from pancakes can be a challenge. But I was starting to get him to eat things like Chick-fil-A. He'd eat chicken nuggets. And, and, you know, these are things that a lot of parents will take for granted. You know, my kid will only eat chicken nuggets and fries from a fast food place. Well, getting my son to eat chicken nuggets was a journey. It was definitely a saga to reach that point. And having a child uh, with, for lack of a better term, with special needs and being a single dad, it definitely put the priority for me on, I have my kid four days out of seven and we are able to have dinner together. What does he want? What is he willing to eat? And what can I coax him into having? So when he was willing to, you know, go with me to Chick-fil-A and he started eating chicken. When I was able to make a big deal out of, you know, the two of us going to Outback Steakhouse and getting him to try cheeseburgers and then sort of coaxing him along and saying, you know, well, you know, big boys eat steak. You know, do you want to try a bite of daddy's steak? And, you know, getting him to try that steak and, and getting him to order his own steak. That felt like a huge success for me. And then the pandemic happened. Um, being an essential worker, like I know you are and were an essential worker, we were both separated from our children for about four months. Yep. And once I started getting him back, which has only just been recent, and it's only just for the weekends, 
trying to sort of get him back into that groove has been a process in which I can say, okay, I want him to be eating things that he's willing to eat, but at the same time, if I'm going to be able to have the opportunity to sit down and have dinner with my son, I would like to enjoy that as well. So I can't take him to Outback Steakhouse. Can I get some really excellent cuts of meat from Wegmans or wherever else and grill those up and for the two of us to be able to share and experience that? So being a dad has definitely influenced what you're talking about. And um, whether you want to look at that as a handicap when we're talking about feeling comfortable with going to restaurants right now or getting carry out from restaurants and sort of having to rely upon one's own skills and acumen to be able to uh, enjoy the things that we used to enjoy and being able to, uh, you know, recreate that at home. Being a dad has really had an impact on that. However, the other side of that is that, you know, as I said before, I cooked a lot, but I cooked a lot at a much earlier point in my life when I was a teenager and when I was in my early 20s. And then after that, I became, as a college student, living on my own, paying my way through things, I became a waiter and I became a head weight and I became a corporate trainer and I ultimately had to be a restaurant manager at one point for a, you know, about two years and they were the worst two years of my life. I had to do those things in part because that's where the money is. That's how you're going to be able to pay your bills and be whether you are that starving artist waiter or you are like me and you're a starving writer slash filmmaker. I had not cooked for a very long time. And in my marriage, as I said, I was with someone who was an excellent cook. And a lot of what I offered was input and feedback. Having worked in a restaurant as a waiter, a lot of that was you know, suggestively selling to guests based on what their interests were, what their, what their, you know, appetites were, the things that they liked and, you know, being able to communicate with the kitchen, the things that uh, needed to be altered to, you know, best, you know, suit the needs and, and appetite of the individual in question. So they'd give me the best money uh, as a tip. Uh, but then later on as a manager, you know, sort of guiding and influencing the staff and also guiding and influencing, um, you know, that's the front of the house, but also the back of the house, the people who are actually cooking the food that the front of the house is selling. So it was a lot of, you know, leadership and um, being able to understand the concept of food and the components that make up the food, but not necessarily having my hands in that. Being a single dad who for about four months was just a single guy during a pandemic who no longer had anybody to cook for him, no longer felt that it was a safe and viable alternative to go out to a restaurant or to wherever I wanted to eat, and having a knowledge of, okay, these are the dishes that I like. I like this Japanese thing, I like this Italian thing, I like this Mexican thing. I like all of these various things that um, I'm accustomed to having once a week or once every two weeks. Indian food, as you mentioned. Now I'm sort of adrift. Do I go to the grocery store and I buy a bunch of you know, frozen crap 
that I, you know, reheat in the microwave and is never going to taste like what I really want? Or do I say, okay, as somebody who between having been in this marriage, having managed restaurants, having worked on a line, have and, and also just being 44 years old and understanding what goes into a pizza, you know, do, do I take all of these things, <laughs> go out and buy those components and try to do it myself? And if ever there was an opportunity for all people in the world right now to learn some skills, particularly in the kitchen that they didn't previously have, 2020 has offered that. And I found that it's, it's not simply the end result. I mean, everyone always says it's, it's about the journey. It's not about the destination. That's a cliche as a writer, I'm sure makes you want to throw up. But, you know, I found that when I'm eating something now that I went out that I specifically said, okay, you know, I like it when this restaurant does it that way, or I liked it when my ex did it that way, or I like it with my friend who does a, you know, a barbecue or a, we do potlucks or whatever. They put this sauce into this. I, you know, I think I want to gear it more toward that. You know, what's going to do that if I go to the produce section and I start picking up vegetables and, you know, I need to start pulling these knives out of the, the out of the knife block and, you know, cutting things and, you know, frying things in addition to grilling things and learning a little bit more about baking and just about food theory and being able to sit down and have that incredible meal and say, I did that. I did that. And I didn't need somebody to make it for me. It's a, it's an incredibly gratifying thing. Yes. No, I think that, I think that that has been sort of, uh, I mean, you, you don't want to say that there's been anything positive about sort of what we've all been going through because, you know, it, it's, it's not something that any of us would have chosen. But at the same time, if we're able to glean something out of it that is sort of a good life experience, maybe it is these moments where we are able to create something for ourselves that previously we would have relied on other people to do for us. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know, I, I keep thinking about leading up to this episode that we are currently recording. You and I talked a few times about, and, and this is something that you touch on in your movie, Butterfly Kisses, is that there are specific experiences that are an innate part of human life. We have to breathe. Uh, we have to, you know, use the bathroom. We have to sleep. We have to blink, of course. And then also, like, we all have to eat. This is sort of like a requirement of being human. I sort of wonder, how has your experience in the restaurant industry been shaped by sort of this relationship that we have? Because I think it's sort of, there are a shit ton of cookbooks out there. Um, enough that I have like two whole sections of my very, very full bookshelf devoted specifically just to cookbooks. And I have about 50 more in my Amazon, you know, list. Yeah, that's, that sort of, sort of speaks to, I think the fact that this is something that is extremely necessary to us as people. Like we have to eat and we sort of turned cooking into this 
art form and into this expression of us. And I think that it's this very strange, unusual thing. And you spoke about this at the beginning about how the restaurant industry sort of requires an amount of performance. And, and I think that that sort of speaks to the necessity of food and, and also this sort of strange element of being in a restaurant, of going to a restaurant, of you are relying on someone else. Like you go in, you order food, which is something that you absolutely must have um, in order to survive as a human being. And then you are completely reliant on this group of people to create for you and to bring to you this thing that you must have. And it happens right there on the spot. The vast majority of products that you order for yourself, um, the va vast majority of things that you need, you order it or, or you go and you buy it and then you get home and then you consume it. Um, this is a case where you're literally consuming it in front of the people or at least right next to the people who have prepared it for you. <laughs> how, how do you think that that shapes the whole restaurant experience and also the whole experience of being someone who is part of making the food or is part of serving the food or is part of, you know, conducting the people who are doing those things? Uh, yeah. I mean, it feels, it's kind of funny. If you'd asked me that question six months ago, I would have given you a different answer. It, it feels in a lot of ways frivolous now. I, I, I mean, different people have different perspectives, uh, particularly in this year and based on their specific, you know, I'm trying not to get too political here, but their, their specific... <laughs> vantage point when it comes to the pandemic, when it comes to politics and the social element that has been erupting around both. I, I feel like, and you know, this is really unfortunate for the big corporations and it's even more unfortunate for the independent business owners, but going to a restaurant for me feels frivolous. It feels in so many ways unnecessary. And it, it hurts me to say it as a filmmaker, the whole question of, you know, theaters reopening also feels frivolous. Nothing is ever going to replace the theatrical experience, but right now, given the choice between streaming something and um, going to a movie theater and then maybe potentially dying or worse, killing the people that you care about, it, it feels like a non-starter, at least from where I'm sitting. Um, the idea of going to a restaurant feels very, very foreign. And it's, I don't know. I mean, it's to the point where, what was the question? I mean, I just, I, I, you know, it's like we're talking about the restaurant experience and we're talking yeah. about um, cooking and, you know, you're asking about food being this necessary thing that people need. And six months ago, it'd be like, well, you know, I mean, you know, we have to sort of uh, choose the things that we want and where our money can best go. And, and, and I guess that's sort of the same answer in the sense that now the idea of going out and paying for, I mean, take whatever it might be, whatever incredible 
you know, I mentioned I love veal parmesan. You could go to the Olive Garden and you can get that for one price. You can go to Little Italy here in Baltimore and you can get that for $20 more and it's going to be, you know, a much better product. And yet, nonetheless, it is something that if you were to say, okay, I'm going to spend five minutes on Google, I'm going to look for the best veal parmesan recipes, and I'm going to make a list sort of based on that of the components that I need, and then go to whatever your local grocery store is. You don't necessarily have to go to you know, the, the awesome Italian-owned uh, grocery store that's across the street from me. You can go to Giant. Uh, you can go wherever you want, and you can get those components. You can bring them home. You can make that in your kitchen. Uh, maybe it's going to cost the same amount. Likely, it's going to cost you a little bit more. Um, nonetheless, restaurants are always going to mark up the prices. It, it, whether or not the, the cost is worth that to you, the point is that going out to a restaurant feels in so many ways to me like an example of disposable income right now. At this particular point in time, when you go on social media and you see the people who are, whether they're complaining about masks or they're complaining about what phase are, you know, your specific state is in with reopenings or backtracking on reopenings and whether small businesses are going to survive and which corporation is folding and, you know, all of these things that are, don't get me wrong, they're terrible things that are happening, but we sort of need to prioritize human lives over the economy right now. and if you can make that dish yourself in your kitchen and God damn it, learn a new skill while you're doing it. Every time, you know, the same people are watching The Walking Dead or Lost or whatever end of the world survivor-based scenario show or thinking about what would I do if, you know, this were the apocalypse Folks, this is kind of the closest thing to the apocalypse that any of us are going to ever experience in our lifetimes. I'm knocking on wood right now as I say that because um, Trump still is potentially reelectable. Nonetheless, the point is that this is the closest to the end of the world that any of us are ever going to experience. What are you learning? What are you doing? Are you going to be able to survive if the lights turn off tomorrow? And just learn how to cook some fucking macaroni and cheese for yourself <laughs> instead of going to the, you know, the macaroni grill and having them charge you $10 more for the same thing. <laughs> uh, that's a very ECAM answer uh, to a very Megan question. And uh, yeah, no, I think that, um, I know that, that I certainly grew up in a moment when food was sort of very low on the list of people's priorities and it was sort of this disposable thing that like people didn't care about and I think that not only did millennials sort of embrace the idea of making food from scratch in a way that I think that at least the generation before and perhaps the two generations before had sort of like said fuck that we're like 
busy working and you I, know, I know I'm I'm Gen X. You were yeah. you were worrying about making your own food. We were worrying about, you know, rolling our own cigarettes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there are there have ever been or there ever will be latchkey kids on quite the level that Gen X experienced. Indeed. Um uh, the millennial generation was still pretty hands off, but not quite on that same level. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're sort of in a moment where like my, my generation, I know for sure, sort of started to embrace the idea of actually making food and actually appreciating food from sort of the ground up in a way the last two or three generations did not care about. Now we're sort of in this moment where, you know, people are, <laughs> people are simultaneously like making sourdough starters at home where they're like trying to attract wild yeast into jars and then making bread from complete and total scratch on the level that like we perhaps haven't done since like the ancient Egyptians and medieval times. Um, and then we're also simultaneously having these enormous social movements um, like uh, the the enormous resurgence of like Black Lives Matter and political protests and also like, you know, people who are essential working. We're, we're just in this enormous sort of like cultural shift. And, you know, I started doing like, the, the only reason I'm doing this podcast is because of that cultural shift. Like it's, these are things that I've wanted to talk about for a long time, but I've sort of only talked about like when hanging out with my friends at the bar and only when like, their conversation dried up, you know what I mean? Um, this relationship that I have with food that sort of developed over the course of my life. And now here we are in this moment where it's like, you know, you sort of like have to make this decision. Am I gonna go out and like do pick up, do carry out? Am I gonna, you know, like risk going to the grocery store? You know, food has become still it's still necessary but it's also treacherous um we know for sure that the restaurant experiences that we once had are incredibly dangerous and perhaps one of the most dangerous things that we can do and and yeah we're we're at a point where we're having to explore and experience you know these things uh and and learn things that we might not otherwise have and um I think that that's both a very uh, healthy and a positive thing. It's giving us the opportunity to grow. But, you know, of course, there are things that, you know, I think that there are certain things that I know that I'm not going to recreate at home. And um, I think that the experience of going and having sushi is most certainly one of them. Um, I haven't had good proper sushi since the pandemic started. And while I know that I could probably make a decent sushi roll at home, I'm going to be able to make like one or two kinds of sushi rolls at home as opposed to like the five or six that I would have ordered in the restaurant. And so, yeah, I, I sort of feel like there is that really good thing of being able to learn. And then there's also that sort of like, all right, what are the things that I can make this weekend that I have time for and that I have skill for, you know, and, and what is the experience that is most essential for me to try to recreate uh, as an at-home chef? Like, like what is within my range? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, 
I know that there are different standards for what has been safe during the pandemic. And, you know, a, a lot of fast food places, for example, have said we are going to no longer have indoor dining. Everything yes. is drive through. And then that makes everyone go, oh, it's drive through. So that means I limit the number of people that I'm interacting with without ever stopping to think that that drive through person um, is dealing with hundreds of people because if you if you drive past McDonald's and you see that line that's going around you go you look at that line going around Chick-fil-A you look at that line going around Wendy's um, people have been so sort of desperate to hang on to some semblance of normal that they have been willing to adapt if I'm if I can only get you know, this particular restaurant or this fast food or whatever by going through the drive-through or doing curbside pickup or whatever. That's not better. That, I mean, that's not a better option. That's not a safer option. It just means that the individual who is handing you your things and doing that transaction is now dealing with a longer line of people and it's been concentrated to those few employees with whom you are interacting. I mean, I, without trying to go off on a political tangent, nothing that has happened um, in regards to COVID has made any fucking sense whatsoever. Um, the only people who've really been using their brains have been those who, and I'm not here to pat myself on the back conveniently, though I can reach my arms <laughs> behind my head and pat myself on the back. Those who have said, I'm not going to make any unnecessary trips out, any unnecessary exposure, because that one time could, frankly, and you know, at the risk of sounding melodramatic, kill my kid. That could kill my child. That could kill my friend, my spouse, my parent, my whomever. Um, I'm, I'm risking spreading that. Then what is the alternative? The alternative is to say, okay, I can cook for myself or I can, as I said before, you know, go to the grocery store and eat out of the freezer section, which isn't satisfying either. And, and then you, you see things like what I saw today as I was, I was running some errands and I was driving up the road and I was passing a Carrabba's um, that is on my way to my house. And Carrabba's, because here in Maryland, um, it was just announced this past week, there's not going to be, you know, we had said you could do indoor dining. Well, the numbers are going up, so everyone's taking a step back. And uh, we are now eliminating that as an option, and it's outdoor dining only. So outside of, and I'm not picking on Carrabba's, I'm just using this as an example of what I saw today, Outside of this particular restaurant, there is a large uh, tent that has been erected um, and in the shade, a number of tables that are all six feet apart. And so it's encouraging social distancing. These people were eating and, you know, bully for them. Nonetheless, I would have to add that it was in the 90s today here in Maryland and you've really got to want to eat some fucking Carabas to sit outside <laughs> in 93, 95 degree heat eating fettuccine Alfredo or lasagna. I mean, that to me, that sounds nauseating. 
if, if we're talking about what is the food that you love, what is the food that you have to find a way to be able to enjoy, are you going to enjoy that? No, you're not going to enjoy that. Go to the grocery store, buy those things. I feel like I keep belaboring the same thing. <laughs> and I don't mean to make this redundant. It's just that people, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm seeing people who don't get it. And I love food just as much as the next person. I'm, I'm in a minority of people for whom food is like, you know, I plan my weekend around food. Okay, this is what I'm going to eat on Saturday and that's what I'm going to eat on Sunday. And so all activities must in some way revolve around those meals I'm going to have. Food's an important thing to me. So are you going to be a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout and learn how to, you know, start a, a campfire or are you going to go pour gasoline on yourself and light a match. It, it seems really <laughs> obvious to me, but <laughs> obvious guy is obvious. I think what I hear you saying is that now is a great time uh, to check out your bookshelf and find out what cookbooks you have or go on Amazon or whatever local bookstore it is that you want to support and is currently doing like at home delivery and find that cookbook that is going to like bring you the, the food that satisfies your soul and learn how to make it as best you can. I am. And, and Megan, are you finding that your shopping habits are different? Have they, have they changed at all as a result of all of this? I mean, uh, for sure, I'm buying, I mean, my cooking habits have changed. I think that for at least the past few years, I've been a single mom for about almost three years now. And that, you know, sort of separation and divorce process sort of put me in a position of eating out a whole lot more than I had before. Because up to, until that point, I was a stay-at-home mom and I was cooking three meals a day from home. And it was a rare exception that I went out to eat. And so I'd say for the last three years, I've been spending a lot more time in At restaurants, uh, in restaurants, <laughs> uh, eating a wide variety of, of food, some of which was Taco Bell. You know, I, I've sort of been, I've sort of gone from shopping, grocery shopping almost exclusively for my kids and then eating out for myself to, you know, having to buy a lot more ingredients from scratch and, you know, keeping on hand a lot of things that I can make quickly and creatively. And so, yes, like my shopping habits have changed. I also, almost every single time I go to the store, because I am anticipating there will be a second wave of this nonsense, almost every single time I buy like a bag of beans and a couple of cans of tomatoes and I, and I find myself stocking up. For the eventuality that all right how long is the food that i have how long will it last so you know that's de most definitely a component and i haven't been eating out at all the way that i have been for the last three years so yeah my food has become my my grocery trips have definitely become different you know i've been ordering online more and i've also been cooking a broader variety of things at home because they're things that I miss and also because that's sort of my only option. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely been different for me in that, you know, I, I didn't used to do the shopping when I was married. And yeah. then once I fell into the same bucket that you've been in as a single parent, you start 
prioritizing what your child wants. It's a lot of mac and cheese. Yeah, you start thinking, you know, in terms of milk and mac and cheese and and various snacky things that they'll eat. And I've really enjoyed shopping for myself in a way that I never have in my life. I mean, I think we can both agree and that anyone listening can agree that going to the grocery store, there's nothing fun about going to the grocery store right now. Um, A lot of people do online ordering, which I feel is advantageous in some cases, but I'm also someone that, whether we're talking about going to the used record store, or we're talking about going to the bookstore, or we're talking about grocery shopping, I like to go out and discover things. Uh, I think you're a very visual person in a lot of ways, both in your storytelling and sort of in life. You like to see it. I would agree with that. And, um, yeah, there's it's there's there's a lot to be said for going out and finding things that you wouldn't have thought of or finding things that maybe you would have thought of, but you needed that visual trigger to go, oh, mm-hmm. you know what? If I got habaneros, I could chop habaneros up and I could add it to ground beef and etc. Um that's a it's a very, very cool and liberating thing. Yes. But if we're talking about um restaurants why did you get fired from Panera? What happened? To Panera? Ah, it was a lot of things. Um, they tried me on the cash registers and I was completely incompetent. Um, I still insist that the uh, 2002 Panera, uh, no, 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 it would have been 2005, Panera cash registers required a college 101 course in their operation. Um, I... Uh, a couple of times was placed on bread making duty. And what happens at Panera is that loaves of bread dough are refrigerated. They're made in a factory, delivered to each individual Panera restaurant in a special refrigerated truck. And then the Panera employees just have to kind of shoof them into the oven, let them bake, shoof them into the oven, uh, let them bake, and then uh, shoof them out. What happened when I attempted to shoof the bread into the oven was that it stuck to the board that it was placed on. And then after a couple of attempts at me sort of like plopping it off into the oven, it ended up wedged and scrunched into the back. Um, And I was never after that placed on bread duty ever again. Uh, And then I think that the thing that was sort of ultimately the end of my career as a Panera person was um, I was put on sort of like general floor duty, I guess. Uh, if you know anything, <laughs> if, you know, if you know anything about Panera, you know that um, there's the place did, where all the food is ordered and Did made, you wipe the then, tables? Did they have you wipe the tables? I was wiping tables and refilling things. So if you know Panera, you know that there is sort of the back area where all the food is being prepped and you're placing your orders and there's the bakery and things. And then there's sort of the exterior dining area where there's the coffee and there are the condiment sort of like little areas and there's the tea and there are, you know, like the tables and the garbage cans and, and all of that kind of stuff. And there is someone who is at least part of the time assigned to like work that area, make sure that the coffee is fresh, 
make sure that the tables are wiped clean, make sure that the little like garbage areas, all the plate, you know, sort of like canisters are being taken back to the dishwashing area. Um, so after I failed at, at sort of doing the bread and after I failed at running the register, um, I was assigned to doing like the coffee and the tea and refilling condiments and things like that. And um, sort of the reason that I ultimately failed at this was I had this tendency when it was time to make fresh coffee, you have to take these giant coffee canisters into the back and empty them out. So you open the spigot, you let all the old coffee come out, and then you put the coffee, uh, the coffee canister under the brewer and you start a fresh pot of coffee. It's 100% necessary when you start a fresh pot of coffee to flick the little tab on the spigot up so that, um, you know, the coffee stays in the machine. So I would take the canisters to the back, empty them out, start a new thing, a batch of coffee, walk away, and about 30 seconds later, I would start hearing people screaming, Megan, Megan, because I was forgetting to pop the tab on the coffee maker back down, and what was happening was the coffee was running straight through and splashing all over the floor. I did this probably five or six times uh, before they finally gave up and decided that maybe I wasn't right for, for Panera. Um, so you so, were yeah. the, pr the problem employee that they kept trying to find a position for and yes. that's awesome. Yes, I if was I, a problem. If I could pat you on the head right now, I would <laughs> in the most condescending <laughs> way possible. Um, everyone should keep in mind that um, I am an excellent at-home cook, I think, at least at any rate. I've certainly I would say you are. a lot. I would say I you are. I can make bread. I can make bread. I can make excellent soups. Um, I'm learning how to cook meat better. And when it comes to vegetables, I kill it. Um, that said, I should never work in the restaurant industry. Um, it's, it, I, I forget stupid minor details that an at-home chef can go back and potentially fix because you're standing there in the kitchen as it happens, but which in the restaurant industry are catastrophes. <laughs> I agree. And you know something, I, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm having a laugh at your expense and uh, you know, I, I'm doing- As you should, as oh. you absolutely should. Well, look, I mean, you know, regardless of whether I should or should not, the fact is that it is an industry that is really tough i mean it's it's really really hard on people and yes anyone who has ever worked customer service you know whether that's at a call center or at a department store or whatever anyone who's ever had to do customer service it's it's really really difficult to deal with all of the karens of the world who just want to complain and get their gift card and their comp or their <laughs> refund or whatever it can be a very, very challenging thing. In the restaurant industry, it's um, in some ways more challenging um, because of the fact that you're dealing with that from all different angles while at the same time trying to you know, put out fires before they can start with other customers and working on your feet for prolonged periods of time you know, sometimes double shifts, sometimes you're hungry, sometimes you're hot and overheated. 
Um, there are all kinds of factors and it takes a specific sort of person. And, you know, if you ever wanted to talk about the sort of stereotypes of the restaurant industry, that doesn't just pertain to the sorts of guests slash customers that come in. Um, that also can be applied to the different sorts of people who work there. And one of the things that you see in every restaurant, no matter what kind of restaurant it is, there is always the, and I say this with finger quotes, the girl who cries. And that is the girl who works at that restaurant in whatever capacity, usually as a server, who is able to hold it together on the floor while she deals with whatever shit is happening. And then she goes into the kitchen in the back, which again, if we compare a restaurant to a, you know, a stage show, the kitchen is behind the curtain. That's backstage. That's where everyone is pulling the levers and activating the smoke machines and the wardrobe changes are happening and the props are being handed off and the lights are being changed. The kitchen is the backstage and the front is where everyone is putting on their performance. And backstage is where the girl who cries comes back and just lets go and wails <laughs> like she is a five-year-old because she can't handle that pressure. And there's also the person, you know, the, the guy who breaks something. But <laughs> I mean, it takes a very specific sort of temperament. And then you've got assholes like myself who would, you know, are people who like to play practical jokes and abused their power as, say, a head weight, never as a manager, because as a manager, you could, you know, be reported to corporate or to uh, the owner who would not enjoy this sort of thing. But as a head weight, you could, for example, um, instruct the trainee, and this comes back to your story about the coffee machine, to go to that machine that typically produces the coffee, which also produces the hot tea, and as the side work, and I, I alluded this earlier, at the end of the shift, um, there are always duties that the front of the house has to perform that involves, you know, you clean this or you refill that. Everybody's got their part so that, you know, at the end of the night, everything is ready for opening the next day. I would, you know, with new employees, instruct them as part of their side work to get one of the big giant several gallon buckets that usually were filled with ice from ice machines and then taken over to the ice dispenser that servers would use a scoop to fill glasses and then soda or whatever else. Uh, to take one of these gigantic buckets and put it down on the floor in front of the coffee slash tea slash hot water machine and to lift the red labeled spigot and to empty the hot water out and um, to make sure that they filled these giant buckets um, and were taking them back to the dishwasher and dumping them out until the machine was empty. It's a, it's a water dispenser. It's hooked up to the pipes. <laughs> it's gonna fill forever. And so yes. I'd have people do things like that, or <laughs> I would instruct them to make sure that they emptied all the trash out of all the various trash cans and um, hauled them one bag at a time to the elevator in a one-story building um, and would have all the different servers give different instructions for where the elevator was located. Um, I, you are I, my worst nightmare is what you're saying. <laughs> I would have had a lot of fun with you at Panera. 
as I did as your trainer working um, in a very different discipline. <laughs> yes, uh, you were an excellent uh, tech writer, trainer, um, and you had your moments of uh, enjoying yourself at my expense. I which taught you were, how to uh, use, well, I, I taught you how to use tabs. Yes, I sure do know how to use tabs now. <laughs> so, uh, so yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, you've, you've, you've certainly had a very broad experience with food and it seems like you've circled, gone full circle from being, you know, like a consumer of food as a child that was not necessarily great food to working your way through the entire restaurant industry. And I'm just going to keep making circular motions with my hand here as I talk about this as is appropriate. Um, to ultimately now being sort of responsible for your own food and you know, the, the food that like your child is consuming here in the middle of a pandemic where it's like completely and totally necessary. Um, so yeah, as, as my first guest on uh, cocktails and cookbooks, um, I guess like what, I mean, I guess what ultimately does food mean to you now here you know, in this time and place where you've sort of, uh, you know, become someone in charge of, of your own kitchen. You know, everyone's talking about, or has been talking for the past couple months about, you know, the pandemic diet and eating too much food and eating everything in sight because people are stressed. There's a lot of anxiety. Again, there's a lot happening with politics and social movements and, um, people have been sort of eating everything and anything in sight. And I did that a little bit. And I, what I found very early on, as we keep going back to, was sort of an ownership of what is my diet going to be? What are the things that I need? And, and particularly as someone who loves food, what are the things that I have to sort of learn to do for myself? And it comes back to a level of personal accountability and that accountability, I mean, obviously it, it pertains to the diet, but I think on a, on a wider scale, it really is something that can apply, be applied to what is your role in the midst of a global emergency? You know, what are you doing? What are you learning to do? What are you doing to protect the people that you care about? What are you doing to help with your own mental health, your emotional health during an unprecedented experience that we're all sharing? What is the role that you're playing? And you can argue that that can be as far reaching as being, you know, some sort of political or social activist and going out and doing things to try to, you know, grab the world by the throat and, you know, shake into existence a new way of, of confronting everything that's happening. Or that can be as minuscule as saying, what do I need to do to take care of me and to the people that I'm in charge of so that simply on a daily basis, I am easy to be around for everyone else who's experiencing what I'm experiencing. 
um, to be the best person that I can be so that hopefully the people around me are able to find their own calm center and do the same thing so that we can all just hang on and preserve our own sanity. And I have found for myself a number of ways of dealing with those things, some more successful than others, and I'm still often stumbling and bruising my knees in the process. But food has been a big one. Food has been a big one because it is such a big part of my life and it ranks very high on the list. And I am, as someone who is a writer, who is a uh, film theorist for a website, someone who is a filmmaker and has so many things that have in the past, prior to this year, if I were to rank you know, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a, an autism acceptance advocate, I am all of these various things. I have found that some of those less essential items, such as my artistic pursuits, have fallen a little bit lower in the top 10, and that things like going to the grocery store, getting healthy food, losing some weight, doing my own preparation, making sure that my son is eating well, um, making sure that if I have awesome leftovers that I bring and share them with the very few people um, that I do have any interaction with because I know that they are safe and taking care of themselves at the office. You know, those things are ranking a little bit higher. And I think that it's okay if your mental and physical and emotional health um, become a priority right now over your career, over making that, you know, landing that position or making that extra scratch or whatever that was going to be. Just enjoy some good fucking bread that, you know, <laughs> make that, have that sourdough starter and, and enjoy the hell out of that. Very, very nicely summarized, Eric Christopher Myers. Um, so, yeah, I I think that um yeah, that's sort of like where a lot of us are at the moment is finding those things that are really essential and critical and I I agree that enjoying really excellent food at least a few times a week is 100% one of the things that is helping keep me sane. Um and, but and also I and I don't mean to cut you off, but yeah, if you go are for doing it. that if you are indulging and you are taking care of yourself through the process of making and enjoying good food. Just make sure that if you're a parent, you're also thinking, what does my kid need during yeah. a time that they are probably able to process less easier, less more, uh, less easily than I can as a mature adult? Yeah. Um, what do they need? And try to make that a priority as well. And I, I say that to no one person in particular, but it's just something that I'm trying to make a priority because my child is so narrow in what he is able to eat, but I also know the things that he wants to eat. So how can I recreate those at home while also trying yeah. to introduce him to new things? So that's, that's something that I would encourage anyone listening right now to try to just keep in mind. Yeah, and I think anytime that you have an opportunity to sort of create a good experience for the people you love. If that gives you a fulfillment, like now is the time to do that. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Eric Christopher Myers, uh, this has been an extra long episode of Cocktails and Cookbooks, and uh, it is wonderful, as always, to talk to you about food and about your experiences with it. And um, I hope that you'll come back on again sometime soon. Yes? Uh, yes. And I'm absolutely honored and flattered to have been your first guest. <laughs> and um, I would encourage everyone listening right now to please, if you have not done so, um, go to iTunes or whatever platform that you are listening to this podcast. Make sure that you leave a rating, a review. Five-star ratings will definitely help push podcasts like this one and other ones that you enjoy out as suggestions to potential new listeners who would not have otherwise discovered this. Make sure that you're doing that with all the podcasts that you really enjoy. And if you've not done so already, and if not, shame on you. Um, make sure that you go to Amazon and check out this lovely young lady's novel, The Altered Wake. Uh, give that a, uh, first of all, an order, give it a read, and then make sure that you likewise leave a rating and leave a review and help all of us indie artists who are contributing so much to keeping and maintaining your sanity during this crazy time, um, able to produce more content that will help you get through this crazy <laughs> And I will... Uh, Similarly plug, uh, Eric Christopher Meyer's uh, brilliant movie, uh, Butterfly Kisses, is available for streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, I believe that he's probably making a rude gesture to me at this juncture, uh, but I insist you go watch it. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, also leave a rating there. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, keep us all in work and keep us all doing, hopefully, these fun uh, conversations. Yeah. Well, thank you for that plug. That plug was not necessary. Um, I'm like I said, I'm a guest, and I'm 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 really grateful for the opportunity to come on here. Um, I also want to say, and this, as I said at the beginning here, top of the show, full disclosure, Megan and I are very, very good friends. Um, extremely, we're very extremely good friends, and um, <laughs> so I've been a big advocate of her doing this show, and I've enjoyed listening to it because there are a lot of things that she has talked about that have been very revealing as much as I have thought previously that I knew about her. There are a number of things that I've learned and um, some topics that she's talked about have led to um, the opportunity for me to read some of her other writing that she had never shared before and uh, to have conversations we'd never had before. And I do just want to say, and I know I've said this to you in person, but I'd like to say this in the event that anyone has either not listened to the episode or has listened to it and probably should listen to it again. Uh, your episode in which you discussed J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, I found to be one of the most brutally honest things that I've heard in a very long time. Um, as someone who does not necessarily care for Harry Potter, um, I don't have the same level of conflict over certain statements that the author has made in recent months. Um, however, as someone who does have intense level levels of 
fanboy devotion for other things, you know, whether that is uh, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or, or comic books or, or whatever else. Um, I can definitely understand in many cases the uh, great conflict that is caused by trying to separate the art from the artist and um, things that we consider very important that are perhaps being um, disrespected by people who have voices and platforms uh, that were meaningful and inspiring to us in our own developments and pursuits. So um, I thought that that episode was absolutely, um, it was it was a very hard thing to listen to because I knew that it was hard for you to say and talk about a lot of those things. And I respect that very much. Well, thank you. And I feel like if there's a moment for raw and sort of revealing conversations and for all of us to sort of dig deep and confront our own demons, I, I think that, you know, now is sort of the moment. Um, because I think that we are at such a critical moment where we have choices. Like, do we, you know, sort of try to cling to the world that we've lived in for so long? Or do we... Uh, you know, try to create something good, learn some new skills, cook some new recipes that maybe we haven't before, and 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 you know, do 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 the best for ourselves that we can. And so, yeah, I think that it's really necessary right now to sort of dig deep and and sort of confront those things. So, thank you for uh, you know, yeah listening and and enjoying that and um like i said i hope that you'll come back again soon and that we can have another excellent conversation uh maybe this time about the pandemic food that we've been cooking what do you think i think that sounds awesome let's do it okay cool uh, that sounds good <laughs> so i think that uh, we will now uh wrap up this episode of cocktails and cookbooks i hope very much that you've enjoyed uh, me having uh, my guest, Eric Christopher Myers, on. Uh, he's always uh, incredibly insightful and entertaining and I think wonderful to talk to. And verbose. Yeah, and I, and, which I love. And I hope that, uh, yeah, we're able to continue to have more lovely conversations like this and maybe bring you something good to listen to while you are also doing this pandemic dance <laughs> i don't dance <laughs> maybe on special occasions so um yeah once again this is uh cocktails and cookbooks uh with special guest eric christopher myers uh filmmaker uh, top to bottom restaurant person. The only thing he hasn't done is own his own restaurant, which, you know, maybe someday you never know. Um, and so go look for him on all his social media platforms, uh, especially Facebook, where he will rant uh, in the most hilarious way uh, on an almost daily basis. Uh, go support uh, your autism advocacy societies uh, that are near you. Uh, this is a cause that is near and dear to his heart as well as to my own. And uh, yeah, uh, cook, cook the food that you love. Pull out your favorite cookbook, dust it off, make something that you've never made before. And uh, 
keep, keep on keeping on. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, once again, for listening. Uh, I am Megan Morgan. This was Cocktails and Cookbooks. And uh, hopefully I'll be back at you with another episode uh, super soon. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.